0: This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is The Divine Impact of Righteous Women. In the first half, Glenn L. Pace and Patricia T. Holland share their addresses, The Divine Nature and Destiny of Women, and The Soul's Center. Then in the second half, Ava Weitzman speaks on women and education, a future only God could see for you.
1: the family a proclamation to the world states all human beings male and female are created in the image of god each is a beloved spirit son or daughter of heavenly parents and as such each has a divine nature and destiny gender is an essential characteristic of individual pre-mortal mortal and eternal identity and purpose. My focus this morning will be on the divine nature and destiny of women and the sacred role they play in the sanctification and purification of men. I'm going to start by giving you two exclusive scoops. First, males and females are different. And second, those differences are more than physical. I developed a love and appreciation for womanhood in my childhood. My mothers, sisters, grandmas, aunts, and female cousins and friends brought immeasurable love into my young life. This set the stage for the adult relationships with my wife, daughters, and granddaughters. All of the above have contributed to my feelings of reverence, adoration and even veneration for righteous women. In pondering the effect women have had on my life, I have concluded that there has been a metamorphosis of my spirit which could not have taken place without these relationships. Of course, the first woman in my life was my mother. How can I describe the impact of my mother's love? A lullaby. Being tucked in bed. Are you warm enough? A kiss good night. Glenn, you'd better get up. You don't want to be late for school. A kiss good morning. You are such a special boy. How I love you. I made some chocolate chip cookies. I want to take your picture. I'm so proud of you. I know you can do it. Are you going to go on a mission? You are going to go on a mission. (laughs) I miss you so much. Frequent love notes. Let's go look at the roses. Did you see the full moon? Aren't the mountains beautiful today? The love in her eyes, her touch, her smell, her elegance, her tender heart, her sensitivity, her femininity. That was just a blink in a lifetime of nurturing. In addition to the loving care I received from my mother, I received similar nurturing from my big sister, who was my mentor and protector. When I was old enough to enter kindergarten, I was worried sick. I'd watched my sister do her homework and was concerned by the fact that I didn't know how to read or do arithmetic. The night before school started, my apprehension must have shown because she came into the bedroom and started talking to me about school. I explained my concerns, and she immediately began to allay my fears. She told me about recess. I could handle that. Then she explained that I would be taught to read one word at a time, and she assured me that I was smart and wouldn't have any trouble now. How would a brother have handled that situation? What's the matter with you? Oh, is Glennie going to cry? And so I explain, I'm never going to graduate from kindergarten because I don't know how to read or do my arithmetic. He would then say, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. If you'll give me your allowance, I'll help you. (laughs) Now how would a brother handle a situation like that different than a sister? As I mentioned earlier, men and women are different. My appreciation for women rose to a whole new dimension when our two daughters came into our lives. There is something angelic about daughters—at least in the eyes of their father. I have sometimes lamented that I wasn't born with the perspective that daughters brought into my life. If a man could be born with that insight, his respect for and treatment of a young woman during his dating years would improve significantly. I remember a time when my oldest daughter was just six or seven years old. I was struggling with saying my personal prayers on a consistent basis. I remember walking into her bedroom one night to listen to her say her prayers. Her room felt so peaceful, innocent, and pure that I felt like praying. I explained as best I could that I had been having a hard time staying in the habit of saying my prayers and asked if I could pray at her bedside. She looked a little puzzled but agreed. On the second or third night, as I began my silent prayer, I felt her little hand on my head. She then turned on her side and with both hands began running her fingers through my hair. I must admit I felt I had been touched by an angel. And also my prayers became longer because it felt so good. (laughs) To this day, Whenever there is a family gathering, I will eventually work my way over to the couch or chair where she is sitting, and I will sit on the floor and wait for her to run her fingers through my hair. From the time my second daughter was a baby, through her early grade school years, I would rock her to sleep at night and carry her to bed. I always knew when she was asleep because tiny beads of perspiration would appear on her little nose. I would look at her angelic face and wonder if heaven could be any better than this. I concluded it must be a great comfort to her to fall asleep in her father's arms. Now I realize the peace and comfort she transmitted to me was possibly even greater. I've always been impressed with the love and respect our Savior bestowed upon the women in his life. As we read about these associations, our focus is generally on what He teaches them and the love and understanding He gives them. Have you ever considered the possibility that these women provided immense comfort to His burdened soul? It is my belief that He needed them as He journeyed toward living a perfect life in order that He could provide the ultimate sacrifice. I repeat— that my association and interplay with the righteous women in my life has created a metamorphosis of my spirit and has been a purifying and sanctifying experience. I'd now like to turn to the more intimate relationship of husband and wife and the impact that relationship has on our exaltation. You're all familiar with the story of the creation. I'm going to pick up the account where Adam was placed on the earth, Please pay particular attention to the sequence of events leading up to the introduction of Eve. And the gods formed man from the dust of the ground and took his spirit, that is the man's spirit, and put it into him and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul. And the gods planted a garden eastward in Eden. And there they put the man whose spirit they had put into the body which they had formed. And out of the ground made the gods to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Thus far there is no mention of Eve. And out of the ground I, the Lord God, formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air— and commanded that they should come unto Adam to see what he would call them. And they were also living souls, for I, God, breathed into them the breath of life, and commanded that whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that should be the name thereof. Adam gave names to all cattle, to the fowl of the air, and to every beast of the field. But as for Adam, there was not found an helpmeet. For him. In summary, before Eve appeared, the world was created. Adam had been placed in the Garden of Eden, and he had named and associated with all of the animals. He was enjoying a utopia in physical surroundings, as well as open communication with God. What more could he ask for? What more could he need? As President J. Reuben Clark says, Adam wandered alone in the glorious garden in Eden, which he had dressed and adorned, the Garden of Eden with its stately trees, its lovely flowers heavy with sweet odors, its grassy swards, its magnificent vistas with the far reaches of its placid rivers, with its gaily-plumed birds, its lordly and graceful beasts, all at peace for sin was not yet in the world. Through all this magnificence, Adam wandered lonely, unsolaced, uncompanioned, the only being of his kind in the whole world, his life unshared in a solitude of exquisite elegance. And what was a far greater moment, his mission as he knew it to be impossible of fulfillment except the Father gave him and helped meet. I'd like to share a perspective from John Milton's Paradise Lost, which fully resonates with my soul. Much like President Clark, Milton describes the beauty of the garden and the variety of animals. However, he goes into more detail on his perception of Adam's frustration and loneliness. In his account, Adam watches the interplay between the animals— and communicates with them as best he can. However, Adam concludes something is drastically amiss. Milton writes, They rejoice, each with their kind, Lion and lioness, So fitly them in pairs thou hast combined. Much less can bird with beast, Or fish with fowl so well converse, Nor with the ox, the ape, Worse, then, can man with beast, and least of all. In other words, Adam is saying, What's wrong with this picture? Milton goes on to suggest that God delayed the introduction of Eve until Adam could fully appreciate her. Seeing that Adam is now ready for the introduction of Eve, God describes what is going to happen next. I love Milton's description of what Eve would mean to Adam. What next I bring shall please thee, be assured, thy likeness, thy fit help, thy other self, thy wish exactly to thy heart's desire. Thy fit help? No, this doesn't mean she would be in good shape. It means she would be a match, a complement, a counterpart, even his other self. Finally. Eve stood before him, and she exceeded his highest expectations. He had never seen anything like her in the garden. Milton continues, Under his forming hands a creature grew, manlike but different sex, so lovely fair that what seemed fair in all the world seemed now mean, or in her summed up, in her contained, and in her looks— which from that time infused sweetness into my heart unfelt before." I hope Milton will forgive me for adding my opinion that the sweetness Adam felt, which was unfelt before, was much more than that which was generated by Eve's physical appearance. Those feelings flowing into him had as their source her wellspring. His feelings were the direct result of standing in front of one of the daughters of heavenly parents, who had a divine nature different from, but complementary to, his own divine nature. I believe the Father's statement, It is not good that the man should be alone, had a much more profound meaning than the obvious biological implications. It also went further than providing Adam with company, Adam's ability. To obtain the purification necessary to get back into the presence of God was dependent upon his continuous association with Eve. Remember what Adam said when Eve stood before him for the first time, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Many years after the creation of Adam and Eve, Paul said, Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. And in the Doctrine and Covenants, In the celestial glory there are three heavens or degrees. And in order to obtain the highest, and man must enter into this order of the priesthood, meaning the new and everlasting covenant of marriage, And if he does not, he cannot obtain it. Why can't he obtain it? It's not just because he didn't obey a celestial commandment. It's because he didn't become a celestial being. There is a limit to our spiritual development as long as we are single. There is a spiritual development which can only be obtained when a man and a woman join their incomplete selves into a complete couple. Just as conception requires the physical union of male and female, perfection requires the union of the very souls of male and female. Elder Richard G. Scott has said, In the Lord's plan it takes two, a man and a woman, to form a whole. Indeed, a husband and wife are not two identical halves, but a wondrous, divinely determined combination of complementary capacities and characteristics. Men and women can accomplish marvelous things alone. However, they are incomplete until united intellectually, emotionally, physically, and, most importantly, spiritually. The world we live in has gone awry, with its focus on the physical part of the male and female relationship. If there is too much focus on the physical, the vital areas of intellectual, emotional, and spiritual union are not being placed in an environment where they can flourish and grow. Our current society is so obsessed with making love, they are not developing a complete relationship which would enable them to express love. Since melding our divine natures is a necessary element in bringing about perfection, we must guard against any deterioration of those natures. Sisters, keep in mind anything that detracts from your divine nature should be avoided. You live in a time when you have more opportunities and options available to you than any other women have had throughout the history of mankind. Some of these options will complement your God-given natures. Others will chip away at it. Some things will make you strong. Others will make you hard. Some will increase your spiritual sensitivity. Others will separate you from the Spirit. If the world keeps chipping away at the divine nature of women, it is probable that our relationships in marriage will not bring about the sanctification necessary for exaltation, or, as a minimum, the process will be delayed. I would now like to express my love and appreciation to my wife. She is an example of one who has retained her eternal nature through 47 years of marriage, six children, 29 grandchildren, and putting up with me— Wearing that eternal nature well, she has supported me as a general authority for 25 years. I could not have served, nor would I have been qualified to serve, without her love and support. She has been the crucial key to the metamorphosis I desperately needed to become worthy and able to serve. Her eternal nature and destiny was never clearer to me, than at the temple marriage of our youngest son. I have had the sacred honor of performing the marriages of all six of our children, and they, along with their spouses, were worthy to be in attendance on that occasion. Prior to the ceremony, as I spoke of sacred things, I looked at my wife, who was seated next to our son. My spiritual eyes were opened, and I saw her shining in all of her glory as she basked in the warmth of having joy and rejoicing in her posterity. She was radiant. I saw before me a priestess, queen, and goddess. There is absolutely nothing the world can offer which could come close to the fulfillment she was feeling. There was no accomplishment in the world she could have attained which would have made me love her more or be more proud of her efforts. Her eternal nature was then, and is now, still intact. We commonly hear the phrase, Men have the priesthood and women have been given the blessing of procreation. Neither assignment meets the measure of its creation unless there is perfection. After perfection comes the ultimate role of God and goddess. These are eternal roles where one continues to complement the other throughout all eternity. It is in the marriage ceremony in the temple where husband and wife receive the power to perfect their relationship and thereby obtain exaltation. I like the Quaker proverb, Thee lift me, and I'll lift thee, and we'll both ascend together. What will happen when we finally ascend together? I cannot put it any better than one of the great women in our history, Eliza R. Snow, who said, When I leave this frail existence, when I lay this mortal by, Father, Mother, may I meet you in your royal courts on high? Then at length, when I have completed, all you sent me forth to do— With your mutual approbation, let me come and dwell with you. Sisters, I testify that when you stand in front of your heavenly parents in those royal courts on high and you look into her eyes and behold her countenance, any question you ever had about the role of women in the kingdom will evaporate into the rich celestial air. Because at that moment, you will see standing directly in front of you your divine nature and destiny. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
0: You're listening to Finding Center. We've just heard from Glenn L. Pace. And now we'll hear from Patricia T. Holland for her address, The Soul's Center.
2: For several years now I have had what has been both an exhilarating and a sobering opportunity to observe rather closely the sisters of my own sex. That has included seven wonderful and event-filled years on this campus with each one of you, including two of those years when I also served in the General Women's Presidency of the Church. During this time I have, like other Church leaders and mothers and sisters, worried over the statistics on teenage pregnancies, drug abuse, and the spread of disorders like anorexia and bulimia. At the same time I have been reading those statistics, I have also seen data showing that six million women in this country with children under six years of age have hung up their aprons, picked up their briefcases, and marched into the career world. I also read of a new and very real illness called the Epstein-Barr syndrome, which has come into our popular medical jargon as the malady of the 80s. Its symptoms are low-grade fevers, aching joints, and other flu-like symptoms. But it isn't the flu. It carries with it overwhelming exhaustion, muscular weaknesses, and physical debilitation. But it isn't the dreaded AIDS. Its victims are often confused and forgetful, but no, it isn't Alzheimer's. Many feel suicidal, but this disease lacks the traditional characteristics of clinical depression. And yes, it can strike men, but three times out of four, it doesn't. This illness is primarily a woman's disease, and those most vulnerable are the so-called fast-track women in high-stress, conflicting roles. Is it appropriate to pause now right here in sane Happy Valley, USA and ask woman to woman what in the world are we doing to ourselves? Is this that female curse Isaiah spoke of in his prophecies? Is this some special last-days dilemma into which we are entering and from which may be near-fatally difficult to withdraw from? I believe that we as women are becoming so concerned about having perfect figures or straight A's or professional status or even absolute motherly success that we are being torn from our very true selves. We often worry so much about pleasing or performing for others that we lose our own uniqueness, that full and relaxed acceptance of ourselves as a person of worth and individuality. Too many women watch helplessly as their lives unravel from the core which centers and sustains them. And too many are like a ship at sea without sail or rudder, tossed to and fro, as the Apostle Paul said, until more and more of us are genuinely, rail-grabbingly seasick. Where is the sureness that allows us to sail our ship whatever winds may blow with the master seaman's triumphant cry, steady as she goes? Where is the inner stillness we so cherish and from which our sex traditionally has been known? In the shadow of the 21st century, can we find what Charles Morgan once described as the stilling of the soul, within the activities of the mind and body, as still as the centers of a revolving wheel is still. I believe, my sisters, that we can find it, the steady footing and the stilling of the soul, by turning away from the fragmentation of physical preoccupation, whether it be thin or fat, of superwomen careers or endless popularity contests, and returning instead to the wholeness of our soul. May I give you my own analogy of something I read years ago, a process that helped me then and helps me still in my own examination for inner strength and spiritual growth. The analogy is of a soul, a human soul, with all of its splendor, being placed in a beautifully carved but very tightly locked box. This box is then placed and locked inside of another larger one, and so on and so on until five beautifully carved but very securely locked boxes await the woman who is skillful and wise enough to open them. Success will reveal to her the beauty and the divinity of her own soul, her gifts, and her grace as a daughter of God. Prayer is the key to the first box, and we kneel to ask help for the tasks and then arise to find that, quite miraculously, the first box now is already open. Our excitement upon gaining entrance to a new dimension of our divinity leads us readily now to the next box. But here, prayers alone do not seem to be sufficient. We turn to the scripture for God's teachings about our soul. And we find that the second box now yields its own mysteries and rewards to the probing key of revelation. But with the beginning of such success in emancipating the soul, Lucifer becomes more anxious, especially as we approach box number three, because he knows that to truly find ourselves we must lose ourselves. So he begins to block our increased efforts to love—to love God to love our neighbors, and especially to love ourselves. True charity takes us into the beauty of box number three. Real growth and genuine insight are coming now, but the lid to box number four seems nearly impossible to penetrate, for we are climbing, too, in this story, and the way inward is also the way upward. Unfortunately, the faint-hearted and fearful often turn back here, Because the going seems too difficult, the lock is just too secure. But this is a time for self-evaluation. To see ourselves as we really are often brings pain. But true humility, which comes from that process, is a godly virtue. We must be patient with ourselves as we overcome weaknesses. And we must remember to rejoice over all that is good in us. This will strengthen the inner woman and leave her less dependent on outward acclaim. When the soul reaches the stage that it pays less attention to praise, it then cares very little when the public disapproves. These feelings of strength and quiet triumph of faith carry us into an even brighter sphere. This fourth box unlike the others, bursts open like a flower blooms, and the earth is reborn. The opening of the fifth and the final box can only be portrayed symbolically, and perhaps the temple is the best symbol of all. Because there in a setting not of this world where fashions and position and professions go unrecognized, we have our chance to meet God face to face. For those who, like the brother of Jared, have the courage and faith to break through the veil into that sacred center of existence, we will find the brightness of the final box brighter than the noonday sun. There we will find peace and serenity and a stillness that will anchor our soul forever and ever, for there we will find God, holiness, wholeness. That is what it says over the entrance to the fifth box. Holiness to the Lord. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God? I testify that ye are holy. That just by being born, you have divinity abiding within you, waiting to be uncovered, waiting to be reborn. God bless you. In the search for the sacredness of your
0: soul, I pray. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is the divine impact of righteous women. We've just heard from Patricia T. Holland. After the break, we'll return with Ava Weitzman for Women and Education, A Future Only God Could See for You. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is The Divine Impact of Righteous Women. Next is Ava Weitzman, Associate Professor in the BYU Marriott School of Business at the time of this address, titled Women and Education, A Future Only God Could See for You.
3: Revelation in the book of Joel speaks of the role of women in the latter days when it says that in preparation for the second coming of Christ, quote, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit. Close quote. Your daughters shall prophesy. In these last days, we are meant to seek and receive spiritual revelation by the power of the Holy Ghost. Like Rebecca, Hannah, Elizabeth, and Mary, women are meant to receive direct spiritual revelation through gifts of the Spirit. Like Miriam, Deborah, Huldah, and Anna, we can develop the spiritual gift of prophecy and refine our ability to communicate with our Father in heaven in ways that affect our own spiritual development, and have a positive impact on the world around us. These spiritual gifts bring us closer to the image of God in which we were created. Through her choice to partake of the Tree of Knowledge in the Garden of Eden, Mother Eve made it possible for each of us to exercise our agency in a world filled with choices, thereby providing us a way to spiritually develop. I do not think that it was an accident, that it was by knowledge that she opened a pathway that would allow us to become more like God. I believe this sets an eternal pattern. The glory of God is intelligence, and we must likewise enhance our own inherent intelligence in order to become like Him and to receive His spiritual gifts. How do we reach this divine potential? How do we strengthen these spiritual gifts that have been foretold? Eliza R. Snow wrote, Let them seek for wisdom instead of power, and they will have all the power they have wisdom to exercise. When God prepares a leader for the gift of prophecy, He expands the view. He does not narrow it. He provides context for their personal prophetic development through lessons on the vast science and history of the earth and of the people on it. To Moses he gave a vision of the earth, yea, even all of it. And there was not a particle of it which he did not behold. And he beheld also the inhabitants thereof, and there was not a soul which he beheld not. And he beheld many lands, and each land was called earth, and there were inhabitants on the face thereof. To the brother of Jared he gave a vision of all the inhabitants of the earth which had been, and also all that would be, even unto the ends of the earth. And to all the Nephite women, men, And children visited by Christ. He did expound all things, even from the beginning until the time that he should come in his glory, and many of them saw and heard unspeakable things which are not lawful to be written. Formal higher education provides an opportunity to see more as God sees, not through a narrow and shrinking echo chamber, but with the depth of the riches both of wisdom and knowledge, with all things continually before him. For he has all power, all wisdom, and all understanding. He comprehendeth all things. This vastness of knowledge must be earned through hard work and by leveraging a greater perspective than our own. Like Eve, we must have our eyes opened not only to new information but new ways of thinking about that information— If we seek discernment through the Holy Ghost as we engage in this process, we will be brought to new ways of valuing, understanding, and perceiving truth. Multiple prophets and apostles have made explicitly clear that for members of the Church, education is not merely a good idea, it is a commandment. Speaking specifically to women, President Gordon B. Hinckley said you must get all of the education that you possibly can, and Elder Bruce C. Hafen said we make no distinction between young men and young women in our conviction about the importance of an education and in our commitment to providing that education. The Lord made clear that all things unto me are spiritual, and not at any time have I given unto you a law which was temporal." This means that the commandment to pursue education, no matter how temporally useful, is really about the development of our spirits and our spiritual gifts. We are commanded to receive education, and this is a spiritual, not merely a temporal, commandment. Prophetic counsel to women has repeated the benefits of education in case we are called upon to become so-called breadwinners in our households. This is wise counsel— And I have seen its place in the lives of close friends and family members time and time again. But this Council adds, precept upon precept, to a deeper truth about the education of women. Our pursuit of knowledge has its own spiritual value, regardless of whether we ever enter the paid labor force. Elder Russell M. Nelson of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles said, Your mind is precious. It is sacred. Therefore, the education of one's mind is also sacred. Indeed, education is a religious responsibility. In light of this celestial perspective, if you cut short your education, you would not only disregard a divine decree but also abbreviate your own eternal potential. Our learning is of value not only if we become mothers or workers or church leaders or community activists— We are of value because of our divine heritage and because of what will one day be our divine inheritance. Our value is not merely instrumental. It is intrinsic. And our learning is not merely instrumental. It is essential. I love this powerful quote from J. Reuben Clark. We who invade the domain of knowledge must approach it as Moses came to the burning bush. We stand on holy ground— We would acquire things sacred. We seek to make our own the attributes of deity. We must come to this quest of truth in all regions of human knowledge whatsoever, not only in reverence but with a spirit of worship. Our knowledge is to be coterminous with the universe and is to reach out and to comprehend the laws and the workings of the vast deeps of the eternities. All domains of all knowledge belong to us. In no other way could the great law of eternal progression be satisfied. Close quote. President Eyring said, Part of the tragedy you must avoid is to discover too late that you missed an opportunity to prepare for a future only God could see for you. That sentiment is so important that I'd like to repeat it. Part of the tragedy you must avoid is to discover too late that you missed an opportunity to prepare for a future only God could see for you. That could have happened to me. As women, our stories are powerful, and they haven't always been told, so I'm going to tell you a little bit of mine. After graduation from college, I worked for a couple of years at a local nonprofit organization where I was inspired by the skills of a new manager. I decided to pursue a master's degree so I could gain the kinds of skills he had used to improve our organization. Between the time I was accepted to the program and the time I was to attend— we learned that I was pregnant with our first child. Pregnancy is always a challenge, but due to some medical complications, pregnancies are particularly difficult for me. I was sicker than I had ever been in my life. I could only stand up for a few minutes at a time, and I was virtually no help as my husband, family, and friends packed up our little apartment and sent my husband to Indiana. By this time, I had been prescribed a temporary bed rest and was unable to travel. I called my program in tears and asked if they would be willing to hold my spot even though I would miss the first weeks of school. When I finally arrived to begin my master's program, the heaviest question in my heart was whether I should be pursuing the degree at all. After all, I was now anticipating motherhood, and though I did not yet understand the gravity of what that meant, caring for our unborn daughter was already the most physically, mentally, and emotionally challenging experience of my life. In my new ward, I was promptly called to be an assistant nursery leader. I was new to the ward, new to the state, and nobody there knew me, including the counselor in the bishopric who set me apart from my new calling. We'd never had a conversation. He laid his hands upon my head and bestowed upon me all the usual authority, gifts, and admonitions appropriate for a calling in nursery, that I would have the strength to carry out my calling, that I would love the little children, and then— Speaking to my most hidden fears and my deepest questions, he told me in the name of Christ to pursue and complete my master's degree, that this was the will of God. And so I did. Near the conclusion of my master's degree, my husband had a good job offer in Washington, D.C. I was preparing to be a stay-at-home mom to our then one-year-old daughter. We were making plans, scoping out neighborhoods, and undergoing background checks. I felt unsettled by the move— like something wasn't quite right, and wanted the confirmation of the Spirit to help soothe me. But the more I prayed, the more agitated I became. This was not a mere lack of answer, which sometimes suggests that the Lord wants us to move forward and use our own agency. This was an active sense of dread. So my husband and I prayed, fasted, and attended the temple to seek guidance about whether or not to take the job. As we were leaving the temple, we shared our independent messages from the Spirit— and discovered that we had both received the same guidance. We needed to adopt a child. This was unexpected but exciting, and we began the long process that ultimately led us to welcome our second daughter. The matter of our imminent move remained unresolved until the very last day of class in my master's program. I was sitting in a darkened room as the professor projected slides about collaboration in the nonprofit sector— During that lecture, I felt a tremendous and unmistakable outpouring of the Spirit, and a clear, quiet, calm voice spoke to my mind, telling me I would return for a Ph.D. I was at peace. I knew what the Lord wanted and why I had been so uneasy about the move to Washington. I didn't tell my husband right away what my prompting had been, only that I'd had one and that I was at peace. And we decided— that when he had the same sense of peace, we could make a plan together based on our individual promptings. Soon thereafter, he felt strongly that we should make a short-term move to Finland for an internship he had been offered. I had received the prompting about my education in May, and applications to the doctoral program weren't due until January, so we took the internship. From Finland, I applied for the doctoral program. In Finland, my husband started his business— the business that has made it possible for us to raise our children with at least one parent always in our home. I finished the doctoral program in about three years and soon found myself most unexpectedly on the full-time faculty at BYU. In addition to food, clothing, and shelter, our work has afforded us freedom, family time, fulfillment, challenge, and a great deal of happiness. We now have four children— and they are individually and collectively the central joy of my life. This was a future only God could see for me. I remember telling this story to my friend Chris, who shared that her own story had been very similar to mine but had resulted in almost the exact opposite educational path. Chris had always hoped to pursue a Ph.D. fairly directly after her undergraduate studies and had planned to do so. But when she inquired of the Lord— He led her in a different direction. The experience was powerful and clear, so Chris focused on raising her young children at home, trusting the Lord and His guidance. Together, Chris and I marveled that God's voice could be so clear in each of our circumstances, and trusting in His goodness wondered how His plans for her would continue to unfold. Similarly, when I told my story to another friend, Debbie, she laughed, because for her, God had made it clear that in her home it was to be, as she put it, all hands on deck, at home, all the time, by her. Debbie deferred completion of her undergraduate degree and taught and nurtured her four children, sometimes homeschooling them to best address their unique individual needs, until her youngest child was five when she was prompted to return to BYU to finish her bachelor's degree in linguistics with minors in Chinese and Japanese. In a world that values education primarily as a means to increase our value in the workplace, nonlinear educational paths may sometimes be considered nontraditional, but they are not non essential. As Kristen Oaks observed, women's educational paths and experiences are often very different from men's, As Latter-day Saints, we know that the pursuit of education is not merely about gaining marketable skills in an efficient and linear fashion, but that education is a tool for gaining important spiritual growth and spiritual gifts that can be used in all facets of our lives. When I reached out to Chris to ask if I could share her story, I learned that the Spirit has begun to open new vistas for her future— She shared that it can be difficult and overwhelming to try and see what the Lord has planned, especially when such revelation doesn't come all at once. I don't know what the Lord has in store for Chris, but I do know it will be both challenging and beautiful. When I contacted Debbie, she said that for her the Spirit seems to work by reawakening her own long-dormant dreams and goals when the time is right. She is now preparing to take the LSAT and hopes to become an attorney. To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven. Pakistani education advocate Ziauddin Yousafzai, whose daughter Malala joined his fight for the education of women in the face of Taliban rule, says that for women, quote, enrollment in a school means recognition of her identity and her name Admission in a school means that she has entered the world of dreams and aspirations where she can explore her potentials for her future life. Our intellectual and spiritual growth through education is a righteous pursuit and represents our willingness to fulfill a commandment of God. Investments in our own development are worthwhile because we are daughters of God and He wants us to reach our divine potential in every possible way. But it should also be acknowledged that it is virtually impossible for the influence of a Spirit-led education to end only with our own benefit. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we read, And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity— I am nothing. Charity never faileth. Elder and Sister Oaks wrote, Our religious faith teaches us that we should seek learning by the Spirit and that we have a stewardship to use our knowledge for the benefit of mankind. We seek knowledge because it makes us more like God and closer to Him, and His central trait is pure and benevolent love for all of humanity. The more we become like Him through knowledge— And the more we hone our ability to hear Him testify of truth through the Spirit, the more these things will lead us to service in every aspect of our lives. Women's voices are needed in all echelons of human activity. President Kimball said, We wish you to pursue and to achieve that education which will fit you for eternity as well as for full service in mortality. We do not desire the women of the Church to be uninformed or ineffective— Dallin H. Oaks said, Our young women's primary orientation toward motherhood is not inconsistent with their diligent pursuit of an education, even their efforts in courses of study that are vocationally related. A young woman's education should prepare her for more than the responsibilities of motherhood. It should prepare her for the entire period of her life. Gordon B. Hinckley said, You can include in the dream of the woman you would like to be a picture of one qualified to serve society and make a significant contribution to the world of which she will be a part. Pursue educational programs which will lead to satisfying work and productive employment. Education will increase your appreciation and refine your talent. And from President Boyd K. Packer, We need women who are organized and women who can organize. We need women with executive ability who can plan and direct and administer, women who can teach, women who can speak out. There is a great need for women who can receive inspiration to guide them personally in their teaching and in their leadership responsibilities. To this, Elder Nelson added, We need your strength, your conversion, your conviction, your ability to lead, your wisdom and your voices— The kingdom of God is not and cannot be complete without women who can speak with the power and authority of God. I plead with my sisters of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to step forward. Take your rightful and needful place in your home, in your community, and in the kingdom of God more than you ever have before. As you do so, the Holy Ghost will magnify your influence in an unprecedented way. Bonnie Oskerson said, All women need to see themselves as essential participants in the work of the priesthood. The kingdom of God cannot function unless we rise up and fulfill our duties with faith. Sometimes we just need to have a greater vision of what is possible. Sisters, never question the value of your education or wonder if you will have an opportunity to learn and use the knowledge you have gained. God knows you, and even though you may not yet know His plans, He knows the end from the beginning. He is preparing and qualifying you for the work He wants you to do. He will continually guide you to ways that your knowledge and your skills can be of benefit to yourself, your family, your community, and His kingdom. For the battles we face in this life, we need to allow God to arm us in His way in His time and with His spiritual gifts. But in preparation for these battles, our women are frequently wounded from friendly fire, even as we stand at the armory. President Kimball acknowledged this when he taught the brethren that sometimes we hear disturbing reports about how sisters are treated. It should not be, brethren. The women of this Church have work to do, Our sisters do not wish to be indulged or to be treated condescendingly. They desire to be respected and revered as our sisters and our equals. I mention all these things, my brethren, not because the doctrines or the teachings of the Church regarding women are in any doubt, but because in some situations our behavior is of doubtful quality. Virginia Pierce suggested that when we feel we must protect and defend ourselves, our energy is used counterproductively, and our learning and the learning of others is severely limited. Consider this experience. Once in an elevator, I encountered a young woman who was pursuing a master's degree. She hadn't taken any of my classes, but I had seen her in the building and knew her to be a promising mentee of one of my colleagues. I asked her how she was doing. Her response to me, a virtual stranger, was this. I am struggling today because my family thinks I have been led astray by the devil to pursue my education. I asked her if she herself was concerned that she was on the wrong path, as her family had suggested. Between the first floor of my building and the seventh, this young woman bore testimony, and the Holy Ghost confirmed to me that the Spirit had guided her to pursue her studies and that she would continue to do what God asked of her. Women frequently persevere in the face of insensitive comments on the part of those around them. We are prepared to soldier on through the attacks of the adversary who seeks to deter the pursuit of our divine potential at every turn. We are often less prepared for the stinging and inappropriate attacks and judgments of our brothers in the gospel, our fellow sisters, friends, spouses, and sometimes, as in the case of the woman in the elevator, even parents. I would be ungrateful if I stood here today and didn't acknowledge the unyielding support of my parents, siblings, and mentors as I have walked my own path, or the love and companionship of my husband who has walked his path beside mine. We are able to accomplish more good together than we ever could apart. If God has directed, even commanded, a woman to pursue her education, who are any of us to turn her away? or to add to her burden as she makes her way to the summit God has bid her to climb. If God is preparing the women of His Church to fulfill prophecy both ancient and modern about the role of women of the Church in these latter days, we should be celebrating and supporting the women in our lives as they prayerfully seek inspiration and use their agency and intelligence to grow spiritually and serve mightily. LDS women are courageous, particularly when they have been emboldened by the knowledge that Heavenly Father has a plan for each of us and that He will qualify us to do the work that lies before us. Once we know what God wants us to do, we are fully capable of following the counsel of President Hinckley to sacrifice anything that is needed to be sacrificed, to train our minds and hands, to become an influence for good as we go forward with our lives. We will seek every good gift in the service of our God. All we ask is that you not stand in our way as we pursue the Lord's errand. Follow instead— The example of Malala's father, who said, People ask me what is special about my mentorship that has made Malala so bold and courageous, vocal and poised. I tell them, don't ask me what I did. Ask me what I did not do. I did not clip her wings. And that's all. Brothers and sisters, I have a testimony of this gospel— God is real. He loves us. He knows us. And we have the potential to become like Him. I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
0: You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was the divine impact of righteous women with thoughts from Glenn L. Pace, Patricia T. Holland, and Ava Weitzman. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.